From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we bring you the first part of our monthly series on the 1979 Iranian Revolution and its aftermath. We'll cover a wide range of issues, including the regional and global impacts of the revolution, the regime's human rights and women's rights record, as well as social, political, economic and environmental problems facing the country. Stay with us. It was February 11, 1979, after a few moments of silence when Radio Tehran broadcasted the voice of Jashmid Adili, who said, This is the voice of the revolution of the Iranian people. He went on to repeat the announcement as if he was trying to reassure the audience that the revolution had brought an end to monarchy in Iran. The streets became flooded with euphoric people celebrating the triumph of the revolution and the end of Muhammad Reza Shah's rule and the Pahlavi dynasty. The victory was the culmination of 18 months of demonstrations, bloody clashes, massive industrial actions, a general strike and three days of armed confrontation between revolutionaries and the most loyal forces of the Shah. But why did Iran of the 1970s, with all of its well-off middle class, repressive political structure, massive military might, and a pillar of the United States hegemony in West Asia, experience a revolution? And what were the origins of the revolution? The 1979 revolution has become to be known the Islamic Revolution because it ushered in a regime with an Islamist project. But how Islamic was the revolution really? Can a phenomenon as complex as a revolution be described by the simple adjective of Islamic? As the first part of our series on the 1979 Iranian revolution and its aftermath, we pose these questions to Professor Ervand Abrahamian, a prominent Iranian historian and emeritus distinguished professor of history at the City University of New York. He is the author of Iran Between Two Revolutions, among other titles. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir. Before we start our discussion of the Iranian Revolution, I would like to ask you to take off your historian hat and tell us where you were during the revolutionary upheaval of 1977 through 1979. And as you were witnessing the events unfold, what was going through your mind? What were your hopes and fears? Perhaps you can tell us how you feel now, four decades later. Well, I remember actually about the time of Jalais Square massacre, I was actually in the midst of reading Khomeini's Velayat uh, Fari. I remember that distinctly. And um, that really did not tempt me to fly over to Iran at that time. <laughs> um, and also, uh, there were family reasons. My wife was very ill at that time. So I really didn't have the opportunity to go to Iran during the revolution. But my reading of what was happening, especially the Velayat Fari, really did not induce me to uh, pick up my bags and go to Iran. A lot of my friends went, and I had a lot of relatives going back and forth. But I was never enamored of the revolution. I was basically studying it rather than being swept by it. And mainly because, in fact, 
a friend of mine from Tehran has sent me a Xerox copy of Elita Fari. Very few people at that time had read it. But my friend from Tehran told me that you should really read this before I think of participating. It laid out, quite honestly, Khomeini's blueprint, what he called Islamic government. Uh, and then he turns it into Islamic Republic. But basically, his religious arguments why the high-level clerics should really be running the state. And this was in September 78, to refer to Jalais Square. That's just yeah. six months before the toppling of the regime, yes. And of course, he had written or he had given these lectures on uh, Velayat of Fahri years earlier in uh, Najaf. And often his supporters disowned it and said, well, it wasn't really his thinking. But my friend who sent me the documents uh, was, uh, had good guarantees that it was, in fact, the thinking of Khomeini. And 40 years later? Well, to me, actually, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm fascinated by the revolution because it is one of the few revolutions that have occurred in world history. Usually the term revolution is used, misused for things such as uprisings, revolts, civil wars, wars of independence. But if you use the word in its true meaning, especially after the French Revolution, the historian Carlyle, writing on the French Revolution, wrote that such revolutions really happen once in a millennium. He was obviously being a bit exaggerating on this, but he was right in that it's not often you get such a true revolutions. You get the French, the Russian, the, the Chinese, the Nicaraguans, the Cuban. But on the whole, many of the events we call revolutions were really revolts, uprisings, or failed revolutions. If you define revolution as a rapid, dramatic change of power, location of power from very different social group to another different social group, accompanied by a radical transformation of the political system, the polity, the social system, society, uh, and ideology, the Iranian revolution really fits into those categories of revolution, and there are not many of them. Uh, they don't occur that once in a blue moon you get such a, a major upheaval. One can define it whether or bad or oppose it or like it, but they're more like uh, natural disasters, natural events such as a volcanic explosion or a supernova. They're very spectacular. They generate a lot of heat, both constructive and destructive. And of course, some people come on top, some are destroyed by it. But I don't think it's worth uh, talking about the morality, whether it was good or bad. The main thing to do is to actually look at what caused this major upheaval and try to analyze the causes of it rather than moralize over it. So now you can go back being a historian. I'm going to ask you this. You mentioned some of the revolutions in the 20th century. Iran's 1979 revolution was the first revolution in the history that was actually televised. People could see footages of this revolution. Uh, we'll discuss the details later during our conversation. But what was the significance of the 1979 revolution? domestically, regionally, and internationally? Well, I think because it was televised, what people saw was 
basically the mass is in action. Here you got, you know, mass demonstrations, eventually three million people out in the streets of Tehran. And this, I think, had a deep impact internationally that the masses could, in fact, uh, intervene in politics and uh, change the state. And I know people in Eastern Europe were I saw this on television. This influenced actually what happened in Eastern Europe. I wouldn't call the falls of the, the states in Eastern Europe as revolutions. But what the Iranian revolution did, I think, do is inspire people that they could take the politics into their own hand and challenge the state. And I think that was really the significance. It was uh, not something that the Iranian revolution really was trying to get across, but inadvertently that was it. The Iranian revolutionists themselves thought that they had a message to the world and that they were going to also change the world in much like the Bolshevik revolution. But here there is, I think, a strong restraint on that. This was not something that was exportable, mainly because the revolution, the language of the revolution was very much uh, Shia Islam. And this hardly appealed to non-Muslims, and it certainly didn't appeal to much to Sunnis even. So it didn't have that type of international war significance that the Bolshevik Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or the Cuban Revolution had in the 20th century. And domestically, I suppose you can argue that it brought an end to the rule of monarchy in Iran. Well, it wasn't just the monarchy. I think it really was a complete change in the ruling elite, uh, not just the monarchy, but the old elite that had governed Iran was replaced by a completely new elite that was much more came from the bazaar. I would call it the lower middle class, the petty bourgeoisie became the dominant class after the revolution. And that meant a transformation of society, ideology, uh, politics, because the ideology of the petty bourgeoisie was very Islamic rather than Pahlavi or supposedly secular. And here you're referring to the traditional middle class. Well, yeah, traditional middle class of the traditional petty bourgeoisie of Iran. Different explanations have been offered for the Iranian revolution. Uh, Some scholars, such as yourself, the late Fred Halliday, Asif Bayat, have focused on the structural factors, the socioeconomic transformation and class interests. Can you remind us of your assessment of the origins and the Iranian revolution itself? Well, the word structural was now associated very much with Scotchpole, but her view was very different. Her view was revolutions, and she studied the great revolutions. She argued that really such revolutions occur because there is a crisis in the state. The state collapses out of a severe bankruptcy or a foreign invasion, a defeat. So the power is in the gutter, and then a revolution occurs. And this obviously doesn't fit the Iranian case. Iran, on the eve of the revolution, the Shah had a gigantic army, a gigantic civil service, was swimming in money. There was no crisis in the state as such, yet the whole system collapsed. So I would say the Iranian revolution undermines the whole idea of a structural failure. But what uh, the word I think Fred and I used was that there were social changes in Iran 
especially the expansion of the intelligentsia, even the expansion of the better bourgeoisie, the traditional bourgeoisie, the urbanization, the dramatic urbanization of the country, the expansion of the shanty towns in um, the cities, all these, in fact, brought about social changes which made it harder for the Pahlavi state to control the situation. It tried to get a grip on the society by introducing the Samuel Huntingtonian notion of a one-party state, but that further actually undermined the state. So I, I think could say some of the long-term factors that made the revolution possible. And then, of course, you have short-term crises, the triggers that permit the opening up of the system, and then you get the revolution unfolding, things such as uh, uh, the human rights pressure, the Shah's vacillation, his probably his illness, some people say, contributed. But these are, I think, rather the last straws that broke the camel's back. Much more in terms of long-term causes, I would say, are these social economic changes that occurred. But added to that, I mean, I would add nowadays something I hadn't dealt so much in before, and I don't think Fred and Asif either deal with, is the lack of legitimacy the state had. And it's a state such as the Shah's collapsed so spectacularly because they were not considered really legitimate. A legitimate state could have easily weathered things such as inflation, even slight slowdown in the economy, but could weather the pressure on human rights. These were, I would have said, minor issues for any legitimate state. But the Pahlavi state was once the opposition could vocal, express itself, really didn't accept the state as legitimate. And not having legitimacy, it really could not cope with opposition. And here, the lack of legitimacy really goes back to, I think, the coup of 1953. And from then on, it's the original sin, I would say, of the Shah's regime, that he lacked that legitimacy from the beginning. And he then tried to overcome this lack of legitimacy by a type of a somersault, political somersault, such as the White Revolution, the grandstanding over OPEC prices and so on, and becoming a major political military power in the region. These are all try attempts to compensate for the fact that he didn't have legitimacy. And the lack of legitimacy was mainly rooted in the fact that this coup was orchestrated by foreign powers? Exactly. But more than that, it wasn't just a coup. It was a coup that overthrew the figure who was considered the epitome of Iranian nationalism and the oil nationalization was not just a question of money and royalties from the foreign companies. It was much more a way of getting national independence. And one of the few people who was actually aware of this, ironically, was the Shah himself. 
the Shah nowadays often gets a bad image that he was basically weak, uh, vacillating. Uh, he may have been those things, but he was, I think, very shrewd politically. And you can see this in the document, the State Department CIA documents. When the Majlis first nationalized the oil industry, this was in April of 1951, McGee, who was the American, President Truman's uh, special envoy to Iran on the oil crisis, rushed to Iran to persuade the Shah not to sign the bill into law. Uh, he misunderstood the Iranian constitution. The Shah could not have signed it anyway. But when he got to Iran, he discovered that really the public mood was such that there was no way the Shah could not sign. And the Shah actually has a long interview with Lloyd Henderson. And he says, look, however much I don't like Mossad there, he represents the national aspirations of Iran the oil nationalization represents the attempt of Iran to get national sovereignty from British imperialism. If I go against Mossad and oil nationalization, I will destroy the Bahlavi monarchy. I'm not going to do that. This is Ambassador, U.S. Ambassador Henderson in Iran. Yeah, this is the Shah talking to that. Yes. And the Shah was con very consistent about this throughout the oil crisis, that if he went openly against Mossad there and oil nationalization, he would basically destroy his monarchy. And therefore, he resisted even the coup. The British and the Americans had to really drag him into participating in the coup. Because he, for him, it was clear that if he went against it, it was really dooming the monarchy. He's a bit not like Hamlet. <laughs> He's much more like actually protagonist in a Greek tragedy where the person knows that if they do X, they're doomed. But they still do it because it's in their destiny and fate to do it. In the Shah's case, the fate and destiny was the U.S. and the U.K. <laughs> they basically drove him into participating into a coup, which he knew that would basically discredit the monarchy. And you can see this actually in the Wilbur document on the coup. They really had to pressure him. And one thing they probably did, I mean, we know from that, document that they said, well, we're going to go ahead with the coup. If you don't participate, there is no guarantee that your throne will survive. And we know from another source that they were talking about that if the Shidden Shah didn't go along, they would make Olam Reza as the new Shah. That's his uh, younger brother. Yeah, yeah. What they were giving him is, uh, in, this is in August of 1953, an ultimatum. We're going ahead with the coup. If you don't join us, you're finished. So he basically was forced to participate. But having done that, I think he was shrewd enough to know that he had really literally discredited the monarchy. After 53, of course, Mossadegh was a non-person. You couldn't talk about him in public. Nothing was written about him besides the trial after the trial and so on. But interestingly enough, in Alam's diaries, he mentions that the ghost of Mossadegh 
kept on haunting the Shah, even when the Shah was at the peak of his power. This is uh, the minister of court for the Shah, and he was longtime confidant of the Shah, right? Yeah, yeah it was only the personal friend of the Shah, confidant, uh, court minister. He saw the Shah every day. The Shah really confided to him private things, and they shared prostitutes together and so on. <laughs> So, but he and admits that Mossadegh was still hovering in the background long after he left. And this is a time that you could not even publicly mention his name. He was yeah, under yeah. house arrest. After he died. Mossadegh died in 67. The oil boom was 73. And this was uh, uh, during the oil boom that the Shah was still obsessed about Mossadegh. So here, I, I mean, I would give credit to the Shah that he was in touch about politics, Iranian politics. Unlike many foreign diplomats who, after the coup, basically brushed aside the coup and said, well, it, that, that was a non-event or it was a public popular rising and we had nothing to do with it. I think the Shah knew and the public, Iranian public knew that he had been brought to power by the U.S. and U.K., but not only that, that they had overthrown the national symbol of Iranian sovereignty, Mossadegh and oil nationalizing. So one of the thing was, I mean, this became a way of trying to cover up the reality as well. The Shah claimed that the oil industry remained nationalized. NIOC, the National Iranian Oil Company, was running the oil industry after 54. And this is all baloney because actually, if you look at the industry, it was really privatized, given back to oil companies. And NIOC was just basically a banner to claim that consortium was under the control of NIOC. The oil industry in Iran remained privately controlled by the Western companies until their contract ran out in 1979, coincidentally with the revolution. So there was no big fuss about their takeover by the Iranian state. But here you have an irony that Iran was the first country to actually nationalize oil in April 1951, and it ended up being the last country to really take over its own oil in 1979. This element of legitimacy, would you say that what led to the revolution was the contradictions between the socioeconomic developments and the political autocracy of the Shah? That was one of the chief sources of the conflicts that led to the revolution? Well, you have the social economic pressures and the usual idea was, well, if the regime opened up, permitted people to air their views, permitted organizations to function, then you would have had political modernization that would conform with socioeconomic modernization. That would have been the Western way of looking at it. But that could only work if there was legitimacy of the state. What I think the Shah realized is once you open up, opposition groups come, the first thing they're going to question is his legitimacy. The Stemple, who uh, was the American high diplomat in the embassy, he only in passing, because he doesn't want to investigate the root of it, legitimacy, he says that, you know, all the opposition groups in the revolution, none of them accepted the legitimacy of the Shah. And just to be clear, what I meant by socioeconomic transformation, that's a 
broader term, the socioeconomic development, to include, for instance, the you know change in the class structure of a society that we'll later on in our conversation talk about how that also became a menace to the Shah's rule. There are academics and analysts who have offered a religion-centric analysis of the Iranian society, if you like, and such an analysis of the revolution. For instance, Hamid Dabboshi, Mansour Muaddil, as well as Anthony Parson, they view the revolution as a result and consolidation of an Islamic movement that, in their view, started in the early 1960s. Quite a bit of weight is given to this Islamic movement in the 1960s. Dabboshi focuses on what he characterizes as a, and I quote, deeply religious society. And there are scholars like Said Amir Arjman, they have gone as far as saying that the revolution was destined to be Islamic, leading to a theocracy. How would you respond to such arguments that concentrate on religion and religiosity? Well, obviously, religion was important because the ideology of the revolution was expressed through religion. You can't deny that. But the argue that really religion explains the revolution is stretching it a great deal. If it's religion, Shiism was in Iran for a long time. And Shiism traditionally was actually highly conservative, supported the state. What you find is in 1960s and 70s is there's a, a transformation of that Shiism. And it can't, you can't say it's Shiism itself develops this transformation. It can't come from within somehow. The people, the actors who bring about this transformation are a distinct strata of the middle class. It's a young generation of college, university-educated intellectuals, intelligentsia, who are born and whose culture is of the, from the petty bourgeoisie. They're children of Bazaris. Their family culture is very religious. But being members of the intelligentsia, they become very radicalized. They're very much influenced by Western radical thought, especially by Marxism. And they very much transform Shiism from a conservative or even apolitical ideology into a very uh, dynamic revolutionary ideology expressed by Shariati and Mojahedin and a number of, then you get actually junior members of the clerics uh, adopting similar language. So it's basically a change in the social structure that explains the transformation of Shiism from this very, I would have said, apolitical or conservative thinking into what becomes sort of this populist, radical uh, Shiism of the Shariati brand in the 1970s. So I would say, yes, religion is important, but you have to put it in the context of the class structure. But can we even argue, if I heard you correctly, that Shiism was really the ideology of the 1979 revolution? When you talk about Shiism, are you talking about cultural Shiism versus an Islamist project? Well, I mean, I would say the people, especially organizing and vocal in the revolution, become increasingly, to use the language of Shiism, of Shariati type of Shiism. It's true at the beginning, 
the opposition to the Shah was among the secular intellectuals, uh, the Writers Association, the National Front, the Today, or what we could, could usually call the traditional left. But as the revolution unfolded and you had an increasing number of people entering the arena, it becomes increasingly, I think, expressed in religious forms. And, of course, clerics, as they enter the fold, because they have a network throughout the country of mosques, uh, they begin to have a much more of a voice in the actual revolution. So what the revolution ends up is, in fact, very much dominated by uh, Islamic discourse. didn't start that way, but one could say this was inevitable once it becomes a mass movement because for many people, especially for the urban poor and for the bazaars, this form of Shiism was part of their cultural thinking. That's Ervand Abrahamian, a prominent Iranian historian and emeritus distinguished professor of history at the City University of New York. Professor Abrahamian is the author of Iran Between Two Revolutions, among many other titles. He's speaking with Shahram Aghamir about the origins of the 1979 revolution in Iran. We'll hear more after a break. Professor Abrahamian, the language of the protests were ostensibly anti-monarchy, anti-imperialist, third-worldist, and nationalist. Independence and freedom were the main demands and slogans in these protests. It was not till the last two months of the revolutionary upheaval, that is, till December of 78, that one could hear the calls for an Islamic republic. How do you explain this shift? How did the Islamic groups gain the upper hand in the array of forces participating in the revolution? Well, I think when the, especially the Moharram demonstrations took place, by then you have more of uh, clerics actually involved in the streets. And you can see this in some of the oral histories that the kids who had organized demonstrations earlier had been shunted by the local mosque mullahs suddenly the same mosque mullahs who had thrown them out of the mosque for being anti-Shah were now in the streets with Kalashikovs uh, demonstrating against the Shah. <laughs> so it, it was this late entry. But once they entered, they have really a network of clerics who have their organizations, it may be informal, but a mosque network that gives the uh, religious element a nationwide organization, which, uh, of course, secular organizations didn't have because of 20 years of repression. So Shah was targeting them, thinking those are his actual nemesis or adversaries, but leaving alone the clerics, basically. Yeah. 
And also there's an added factor. You can close down trade unions or control trade unions. You can abolish political parties. It's hard to bulldoze mosques everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Especially for the Shah, who claimed to be a very religious man. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the only way we could do it, some, you know, like the Egyptian state has done, is try to control all the mosques. But it's very hard, uh, especially with the Shah's regime, to have done that. So there was this network uh, already there of clerics who could be mobilized. And, of course, here the, the division was, would they be mobilized by someone more liberal cleric like Shariat Madari or by uh, Khomeini supporters. And here the populism, I think, helped again Khomeini because uh, people who were going to participate on the ground level were much more attracted by this type of populist rhetoric rather than more cautious sort of liberal constitutional language of uh, Shariat Madari. And, of course, there were some clerics who were conservative, Golpayagani and so on, and those clerics were not going to come out in support of the Shah. They probably just stayed home or tried to keep out of the whole situation. But, of course, there's another institutional factor that puts the center of gravity more into the religious wing is the bazaars. They have their own networks. They have the money. They have the guilds. They have the informal structures there. And once they get into the action, they also they throw the weight behind the religious element. None of the secular organizations have that type of money, that type of network. And it's often forgotten, actually, even before the Shah's regime fell in Tehran, in a lot of provincial cities, the takeover by the local informal clerical, basically the comités, that takeover had already taken place. So the the revolution in Tehran really caps what had already happened through much of the country. Given the broad spectrum of forces that participated in the revolutionary upheaval, given the main demands of freedom and independence clearly articulated by the people marching the streets and taking part in work stoppages and strikes, and given the role played by secular forces in jump-starting these protests, I think it's warranted to ask this question, how Islamic was the 1979 Iranian revolution by calling it an Islamic revolution, are we not ignoring the praxis and agency of millions of people who made the revolution a reality? The revolution was too complex to be captured by an adjective, was it not? Well, I think in any revolution, you can say there are many different streams of thought participants. But the question is, which was the dominant one and which one wins out? So we talk about the French Revolution as being a liberal revolution, although there were many different non-liberals involved. Similarly, we call the Bolshevik Revolution the Bolshevik Revolution, although there were many other different uh, streams of thought there. In the Iranian Revolution, I think it's fair to call it Islamic because the Islam doesn't explain it. But the people in the driver's seat and the people who eventually controlled it, were using the language of Islam. So once you have that discourse, 
it sort of sets the ground for the future that uh, whatever regime is going to set be set up has to be within the framework of Islam, especially defined as the people in charge of the whole process. When using it, it's just more in terms of this is the dominant ideology, and it was the dominant ideology because it was the dominant ideology of the class that was dominant in the revolution, and the class that was dominant in the revolution was the bazaar and their allies, the clerical hierarchy. Even though the decisive blow came from the working class, that actually changed the picture and the balance of forces. In your book, History of Modern Iran, you write that your book aspires to British historian Eric Hobsbawm's goal of presenting not just political history uh, or social history, but the history of a whole society. I also find this work, along with your other works, to be in sync with E.P. Thompson's concerns that the history is not the history of the ruling elite, but the history of the ordinary and common people. So having said that, what can you tell us about some of the grassroots activism through which people's power was exercised during this revolutionary upheaval and before the new regime actually consolidated its power? Well, this is a field that hasn't been studied much. You'll be getting some oral histories, but of course, 40 years later, oral histories tend to be a little unreliable. But you do find some, basically, memoirs of how people organized local demonstrations, who they were, local informal groups, especially high school students who went into the street and organized it. Hopefully there'll be more works from the bazaar of what was happening in the bazaar. But that type of sort of A.P. Thompson type of work needs a lot of data and memoirs, which we don't yet have. Eventually, I hope, especially historians working in Iran, will try to dig out that type of materials. But, of course, you can't really understand mass revolution unless you really know the mentality, the the activities of what was going on on the ground, from the press, from histories, from government documents. You can only get a glimpse of that. Uh, You really need primary sources from people from below And we don't yet have that much of material. Hopefully, next generation of historians will be able to dig up that material. Of course, we do have some knowledge of some of these councils that were formed, or factory committees, for instance, or neighborhood councils, organizations within the educational circles. These were forms of, if you like, people's power. Yes, there is some of that. But it's interesting that how short-lived they were and how easily they were crushed by the Islamic Republic. So how viable they were is, I think, open to question. At at first, they looked like a real counterbalance to the comités and the religious authorities, but those workers' councils were quite easily actually dismantled by the state. It's true that Ayatollah Khomeini had criticized the Shah's regime as early as 1963, But he had supported constitutional monarchy. In fact, his treaties of Islamic State, as you mentioned, Orvalat Fari, which is the guardianship of the jurisprudence, was presented to his students only in 1970. 
that was a departure from the political quietism that generally dominated the Shia clergy. Rarely did anyone know about Khomeini's vision of government, this vision of government. He and his closest supporters did not want to publish those views, and the Shah's censorship paradoxically helped them in achieving that goal. As you mentioned earlier, not many people had seen it. I suppose we should also mention that in 1979, half of the Iranian population was under the age 16 and had previously not even heard uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's name. Is it fair to say that overwhelming majority of Iranians were not aware of Ayatollah Khomeini's intent to establish a theocracy, even when the slogans of Islamic Republic, which was an ambiguous concept, was being chanted by the protesters in the last two months of the revolutionary upheaval? Oh, definitely. I would say very few people knew about uh, Khomeini's uh, real thinking, Velayatul Fari. And he was politically shrewd enough not to actually talk about those things before the revolution. But the thing here is the discourse is important. If you have a political discourse within Islam, and it wasn't just Khomeini himself, it's people like Bazar Ghan, uh, Shariati, Mujahideen, you're talking about a discourse that is founded and basically limited by the discourse of Islam. And then the question becomes, who determines what is Islam? Is it some sociologist in Mashhad, or is it some student university is free to conclude Islam is this, or is it someone with a long record of seminary education who will decide what is Islam? So what I'm saying is once you have a movement that is, uh, its discourse is specific religion or a specific ideology, that course of events will be determined in a way by that discourse. So once the revolution happens and the main slogan by then is Islamic revolution, then... Or Islamic Republic, rather, right? Or Islamic Republic, then who decides what is going to be the form of Islamic Republic? Some guy who's a lawyer or some guy who's a senior theologian? This ambiguity, though, in Khomeini's talks helped out the Islamic groups. Yeah, but it also was a trap for them because people like Bazar Ghan, the Mujahideen, when they talked about Islam, their idea of Islam was very different to what they got on the Khomeini. So sure. they were, in a way caught by the trap of having used Islam as their ideology. In your works in general, you do give what is, in my view, well-deserved consideration to class interests and the role that different social classes play in political transformations. Which social classes and social groups participated in the 1977-1979 revolutionary uprising that dislodged the Ancien Regime in Iran? Well, I would say it initially started with the intelligentsia of writers, the Goethe poetry, people also who had had education, some of them actually in quite important positions in the government, but they ideologically were dissatisfied. Secular people, actually. Yeah, secular. So, But as the revolution developed, you have the entry of seminary students like in Rome. Then you have basically the entry of bazaars uh, who had their own economic grievances we haven't dealt with with the regime. You have increasing opposition in the cities. And 
And the whole thing then actually snowballs with the entry of the urban poor, who are often recently uh, villages who've been displaced in the shanty towns. And this is where then you get basically almost daily confrontations in the street between bachelors in terms the lads in the street who are mostly high school students, recent graduates of colleges or high schools, basically poorer uh, strata, some of them from the bazaar, some not from the bazaar. And this becomes basically a constant street protest. And when you get the mass meetings by the time of Eid al-Fetch or Muharram, you're already then talking at a mass protest where almost every sector of class society, with the exception of, I would say, of people who had got land in the villages who were not participating in this. But the urban population was dramatically involved. So I think Kurzman, who's a political scientist who's done a book on the revolution, argues that this revolution had more mass participation than any other a revolution. And a definition of a revolution, of course, is having mass participation. But in terms of per capita, more people were involved in this than any other revolution. And this actually, I would say, almost every sector of society was involved with that exception of the rural property uh, farmers and, of course, the old elite, who numerically are insignificant. But you find even Secular people who were weary of clerical authority, they still participated, even though they basically had reservations, because for them it was like a flood. When you have a major dam breaking and there's a flood, you basically try to swim with the flood rather than swim against it, because then you're likely to be drowned by it. So... By February of 1979, I would say the whole society was really, in urban society, was involved in it. Having said that, then the question is, uh, who was in the driver's seat? And that's where the question of the future and power comes in. I think by end of 78, early 79, the driver's seat were clearly... Khomeini and his entourage of clerics. This is the last couple of months. Yeah. And here, actually, the issue of charisma comes in. It's something people haven't really explored. But Max Weber has some interesting arguments about charisma. Uh, He never argued that charisma causes revolutions. So some people misinterpreted said that if you have a charismatic figure like Mao Zedong or Khomeini, he is responsible for revolution. What Max Weber argues very different is that if you have a situation where traditional uh, legitimacy has collapsed, traditional legitimacy being obedience to tradition, custom, traditional methods, and you don't yet have modern so-called rational bureaucratic legitimacy. You have a vacuum. And in that vacuum, what you can have is the appearance of a figure, like an Old Testament figure. That's why he uses the religious term charisma, as authority from a, somehow from supernatural realm. 
as a person who says that, well, old legitimacy, old laws are broken down. But here I present a new one. My word is the word of new law. And this is actually what Khomeini was doing. He was saying, basically, the Shah is not legitimate. He has no authority. But I, as representative of Islam, give legitimacy to the revolution. And also the revolution gives legitimacy to me. So in a way, a charismatic figure says, well, tradition law tells you this, but I tell you X, Y. I tell you different. And my word trumps over tradition. And this is where actually I think Khomeini fits in as a figure that can appeal to people because he now represents the basic the new form of legitimacy. And you can see this in various forms with people saying that, well, when they looked at the moon, they saw the Khomeini's image in the moon. This is basically giving him ultra-human authority. And therefore, his word becomes the new system of legality. So who is Bazargan? He's important because Khomeini appoints him. Bazargan isn't elected. He has no institutional power. He's there only because Khomeini has appointed him prime minister. Why doesn't Bakhtiar have any legitimacy? Because the Shah and the Majlis have appointed him. And according to Khomeini, the Shah and the Majlis have no authority to appoint Bakhtiar. So he says, I'll slap Bakhtiar's face because he's no one. In your other works, you know, you have elaborate explanation of Khomeinism, as you call it, and his populism. And I think this summarizes what your argument is. He basically had a populist appeal to the masses. I think that also the charisma works, and also you find this charisma with other figures. It's not only the claim that I have authority that trumps over other authorities, but also he has socio-economic rhetoric, not necessarily concrete plans, but rhetoric that appeals to the urban poor. So you find in Khomeini's writings, you know, statements like there's a conflict between uh, palace dwellers and uh, slum dwellers, that in true Islam, there will be no poverty, that in true Islam, there will be no class differences, that uh, a a poor man's life is worth a hundred years of a rich man's life. So uh, the idea that he will carry out drastic land reform denouncing the Shah for failing to carry out economic reforms. These are all basically more substantial reasons for urban poor to appeal to him. But but to be clear, this rhetoric was more recent. In his earlier writings, he barely has any reference to lower classes of the society. Yes. And this is because they're jockeying for power with the other forces, such as leftists and other people with radical literature. Yes. And also, I think he may have been influenced by some of younger theologians who were influenced by Shariati and the Mujahideen. And someone like Beheshti was, I think, politically savvy enough. I think Beheshti was at heart conservative. But he knew that this type of... uh, populist rhetoric 
words useful uh, in a revolutionary situation. So it's a very opportunistic, or I would say Machiavellian, use of discourse to appeal to people outside the clerical hierarchy. This is typical populism. It had that component of a, a foreign enemy in it, which is essential for this sort of populist movement. You had these imperialist powers with their ties to some internal forces. And that rhetoric clearly is something essential for this type of populism. Yes, and also I think essential also for populism is despite the rhetoric, there is also the insistence that legitimate private property is protected. The Sharia protects legitimate private property. And this is one way of reassuring the bazaar petty bourgeoisie that their property is not threatened by radicalism. There were nearly 10 months of street protests, but they proved to be insufficient in dislodging the Shah and his autocratic regime. It almost looked like a political stasis. What changed the balance of forces in October 1978? I think what eventually basically brings down the regime is general strikes. The whole country basically stops working, including oil workers or refinery. And what I think this really brings the question of the idea of the military clampdown, bloodshed, would have stopped the revolution and secured the Shah's throne. In fact, whenever the Shah did resort to hardline tactics like after Jale Square, uh, this intensified opposition and spread the opposition from street protests actually to a general strike. So, you know, when the whole country stopped and oil workers said, well, we'll go back to work only after Alibaba and his 40 thieves have been exported. <laughs> <laughs> it was clear, I think, that hardline tactics weren't going to work, and the only way to solve the problem was the Shah to leave. This is not a simple question to ask, but was the Iranian revolution inevitable? Could the Shah have done things that would have prevented his regime's collapse? Also, was the outcome of the revolution and the ascendance of the Islamists inevitable? Well, I want the second, it's hard to answer. The first one, I would say, answer is simple. It was inevitable because the original sin was the 53 coup. So what is the miracle is the Shah survived that long. But it, I think the final doom of the monarchy was inevitable because of 53. Professor Irvan Abrahamian is a prominent Iranian historian and emeritus distinguished professor of history at the City University of New York. He is the author of Iran Between Two Revolutions, among many other titles. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir. To hear the full interview, please visit our SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. <laughs>